There we go. Well, I'm excited that you guys thought enough about God to be here on a three-day weekend when you could be somewhere else. A lot of things beckon you, but I hope you'll be glad you came. hope you'll be blessed. i uh, shown you a couple of videos this morning about uh, dads at the beginning who uh, sucked his kid into some kind of a wacko routine on Britain's Got Talent TV show. And then in this last one where dad just missed the mark totally and let the kids go splat all over the place. Both of those are kind of relevant for the thing we're going to be talking about today as we talk about something really goofy that the father of the human race did that jumped up and bit us as well. Now, so far in our teaching through the book of Romans, we have mentioned that faith in Jesus results in the imputation or crediting of Christ's righteousness to us. If you're new here, don't be put off by the fancy Nancy term imputation. It's simply an accounting term. It's, uh, think of it as a credit or a deposit to your bank account. So you put your faith in Christ, and Christ's perfection is credited to your account. And it's worth more than $650, right? Legally, God views you as perfect, as sinless, as not guilty of sin as Jesus himself is because of your faith placed in him. And that, that's a good thing, right? Because we all know that we are not actually sinless, but the penalty that we owed, Christ paid for on the cross. And that is actually the second aspect of imputation that the Bible talks about. That Christ on the cross had imputed to his account, credited to his account, all the sin that you and I stored up in ours. And he paid the penalty for it. Now, normal folk among us are going to be kind of awed by this. How could it be that we would be handed this kind of gift, a, a declaration of perfection before God, merely because we have expressed faith in Christ and we did absolutely nothing whatsoever to deserve it or earn it? Well, hold your horses, Paul is going to say this morning. I know this does sound unbelievable in an incredibly good way, but you need to remember that this is not actually the first time that such a transaction has occurred in human history. It, it has happened before. And what you might not know is that those two events are actually connected because what Christ did undoes the earlier action. That when Adam, the first man, sinned, his action affected all humans who came after him as if they had actually been there and committed that first sin with him. So the Apostle Paul and I have some work to do this morning to help you through a text that we all want with every fiber of our being to resist. It's probably, in my ass assessment, one of the texts that keeps preachers a whole lot smarter than I am uh, than, uh, from teaching through the book of Romans as an entity. Right? So let me pray for our time and we'll get cracking. Lord, thank you for your word. Thanks for uh, your love for us. Thanks for worship that we can praise you and remember who you are, remind ourselves of who we are and how lost we were without you and what a marvelous thing you've done for us in loving us when we didn't deserve it and dying for us when we didn't deserve it and offering us life eternal through your son, Jesus Christ, when we did not deserve it. You love us. And as we've learned in this book so far, once we are yours, we are yours for good. Open our minds this morning that we may understand wondrous things out of your word. Now, the Puritans used to teach their kids the alphabet, and they would use the Bible to kind of do Bible stuff and, and, and alphabet stuff. Not a bad thing. 
But for the first letter of the alphabet, they would say, in Adam, see, Adam starts with an A, that's, that's where you get the A, and Adam's sin, or Adam's fall, we sinned all. They got this passage you're going to look at this morning, dealing with imputed sin, this credited sin concept, that we receive credit for what Adam did in the Garden of Eden as if we had been there ourselves, even though we weren't there ourselves, and we didn't actually do it ourselves. Adam was, to borrow a term from our own government, our federal representative. When your representative or senator in D.C. casts a vote, it's as if you are casting that vote, even though you didn't actually vote, and even if you happen to disagree with that vote. And so when God said to Adam, in the day that you do it, sin, you will surely die. That's what happened. He did it, and he began to die. But lo and behold, we also died. See, the certainty of death for us did not begin when we came out of the chute, grew up, and knowingly sinned. That determination occurred when the representative of the human race, Adam, broke the one law that God had established. Do not eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And death reigns supreme because of that one sin over all human race. That's why babies can die in the womb. It's why babies can die as newborns. They are conceived carrying the weight of that original sin that Adam did, even though they themselves, or we ourselves, did not do it. Adam sinned, and death, the consequence of sin, got credited to the account of every human being since. Now, you're thinking, well, that seems fair. <laughs> that, that's not too dandy, is it? Um, crazy stuff. Well, we see imputed sin talked about elsewhere in the Old Testament. Like when King David acknowledges that he was conceived in sin and brought forth in iniquity. It wasn't because his parents were shacking up together before they got married. Right? Sin, he recognized, was hanging over him from the very beginning of his life. That everything went wrong for him well before he committed adultery with Bathsheba. Well before he learned that LMNOP was not just one letter of the alphabet. He got it that the reason there is death in the cosmos is because of an original sin that occurred somewhere in the past. That sin originated in somebody for the human race and all of humanity shares the blame for what that one original sinner did. As if we were all there with him when he did it. So if you're sitting here thinking, okay, this truly is not fair. You're not the only one. You may have read about uh, the Enlightenment movement in, the, uh, in your history classes. Uh, it really took off. I mean, it, was, it actually existed a couple hundred years in some form or another before the 1700s, but it really kind of jettisoned up in the 1700s. It ended up rejecting the Bible as the arbiter of truth on anything, on God, on the universe, on beginnings, on man, on sin, on salvation, you name it. If the Bible talked about it, it was probably rejected by the, uh, the Enlightenment movement. Instead, man became the arbiter of truth. Man's reason became the final word. And these great philosophers of the Enlightenment concluded that you need to limit what you see as truth by what you can test, to see, smell, taste, touch, whatever, with your own natural senses and your own reason. So anything supernatural or anything that didn't agree with what they reasoned was correct was dismissed. And to accommodate this new trend of I'll put quotes around this, rationality, and not to be thought foolish, a lot of churches kind of went along. 
they kind of morphed into what we call today liberal theology churches, which is a good description. Churches liberated from the truth of Scripture. Now, Dr. John Hanna, a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary, did something kind of interesting. He kind of traced the Enlightenment movement's assault on Christianity, and he says something very fascinating. He says the first target that the Enlightenment took on was not the virgin birth. It wasn't the Trinity. It wasn't the deity of Christ. It wasn't even the miracles. Those were eventually targeted, but they were not the first target. The first thing was what the Puritans believed in the theology of original sin. See, see, it's really hard to sell a line if you're the Enlightenment movement that man is the center of wisdom and goodness and all that righteousness stuff. If he, if he comes out of the chute, as hockey broadcasters call the penalty box, the sin bin, <laughs> like these five Washington capitals, right? So they rejected this idea of original sin. Man is basically good. He doesn't need saving, certainly not by this bloody sacrifice of some savior dude. Whatever's wrong with man can be fixed, if there's anything wrong at all, by education, by science, by improving one's environment. So as I said, this passage we're going to look at today remains controversial because enlightenment thinking envelops our culture. Passage itself is not really all that difficult uh, to, or complicated, really. I don't need to provide you some elaborate, convoluted interpretation. We'll just read what it says. But what it says clearly might offend us if our thinking is a little askew from what God thinks. So I'll let you worry that one as we go through this. So what's the context for this passage? Paul has just stated, as you, if you were here last week, that uh, we can have joy as Christians because we can know right now where we are going when we die. We have security in where we're going as Christians. Christians don't have to wait to get to heaven to find out whether they're going to get in. Christians can be at, are at peace with God, Paul says. We're not at war anymore. In fact, we have been adopted as God's children. We have the grace of God, this uh, bestowing on us of this un undeserved favor that God has shown us. We didn't earn it. We didn't deserve it. So God just bestows it on us, and he's not going to take it away. We can stand confidently in this, knowing that it's ours. If we have truly, genuinely put our faith in Christ, our salvation is secure. And as we go through life, we get trials that prove our character. We have endured those things. We've been given the Holy Spirit who constantly is pummeling us with the communication that God loves us and we are his children uh, and that our salvation is secure. So Paul is wanting us to know and show us that this amazing love that we've experienced, this salvation by faith that credits all believers with Christ's perfection should not really startle us all that much. Why? Because the concept of the act of one man impacting so many others in a great way, which is what Christ did, was exactly what happened to mankind in a horrific way from the one thing that Adam did. And as horrible as that result was of Adam's sin, what Christ brings to the table has the power to completely unravel and undo for followers of Christ what Adam accomplished. So, here we go, our text. Verse 12, chapter 5. Therefore, just as sin came into the world, and, we, and it did, through one man, Adam, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all men sin. What's Paul doing? He's going right back to the book of Genesis, which recorded the very first sin of mankind by the very first man, Adam. So Paul seems to believe the Genesis record is absolutely accurate. Through one man, Adam, sin enters our world. 
Sin had its origin for mankind in the Garden of Eden, when Adam sinned. In the day you do it, you will surely die. And thus Paul says, look, the reason we have death is because of that first sin. There was sin, and the consequence was death. And death spread to how many men? Men is just another word for mankind. Everybody. Everybody. Spread to everybody. The verb is very important. The verb sinned is in the aorist tense, which has a strange meaning. It means that it's a present reality that occurred sometime in the past. It's a present reality that occurred way back in the past. In this case, all the way back in the Garden of Eden. It was like we died at that point. It's a past action. They all sinned. It's like you and I were in the Garden. Again, God deals with man federally. What Adam did got passed down to his offspring. In Adam's fall, we sinned all. Now, before I get back into our text, I want to do something because I don't want you focused on this topic. I'm going to kind of breach a little bit before we get into the rest of the text. If I don't breach it, uh, I'm going to get emails on it, and you're going to be thinking about a subject that you might be not, I don't want you to think about while we're talking about this. And that's on the issue of, okay, what happens to kids? When they die, if they have inherited this sin thing, this guilt of sin, and they die, what happens to them when they die? So to do that, I need to kind of talk a little bit about sort of the biblical teaching on sin itself. It shows up in three ways in Scripture. Then we'll kind of talk about uh, kids and get that out of the way. There is imputed sin described in Scripture. And this is what we're talking about this morning, that, that Adam did something and it got credited to our accounts. There's imparted sin, which is like uh, the sin nature. And then there's intentional sin, which is what the sin nature produces, which is individual acts of sin that you and I do. So imputed sin. It results from what Adam did in the Garden of Eden, that we're talking about today, that his sin, the effect of it, enveloped all of us. The result of it is physical death. We all die physically because of what Adam did. Some children die in the womb, some children die within days, some within months. Death comes to them even though they did not do what Adam did, of transgressing a very specific ordinance law of God. But death comes by this imputed sin. Secondly, there's imparted sin. We often refer to this as the sin nature. The nature we have, it's propensity to do the wrong things. See, on the spiritual side, Adam's sin also brought another kind of death. There's a separation, ultimately, for us of our physical bodies and our souls. There's also a separation of us from God spiritual death, where we are no longer in contact with God. It separates from God. We're now enemies of God, not friends of God. We do not come out of the womb neutral. We have a nature that is inclined to sin. The tendency we have from our earliest memories to rebel, where does that come from? This slide, she's striving to try to figure it out, right? But, but the truth is, it doesn't come from anything on this slide. We are, in fact, truly sinners. From the beginning, of our existence. Now, it takes a little while, perhaps, for that to flower and blossom, but the root of it is this imparted sin, this nature that we have. And three, there is intentional sin. The sin nature that we have leads us to engage in individual activity that's wrong, things we know we shouldn't do, motives that are wrong, lusts that are wrong, thoughts that are wrong, intentions that are wrong, as well as particular acts. We, see, we know we should not lie, but we all have lied. Now, the marvelous thing is that Jesus ultimately will undo all these, these various aspects of sin. By the imputation of his righteousness to us, we escape the imputed sin of Adam. We end up living. We may die physically, but we are going to be resurrected with new bodies and live forever. 
As Christians, we get a new nature that battles against the flesh while we're here on earth. But there's a day coming when that old nature, that flesh will be no more. But even now, we have a new tendency as Christians that wants to please God, wants to do the right thing, wants to do his will. And a nature that when we sin, it grieves us as it grieves the Holy Spirit. We have a new intent. It's new birth. We are a new nature from Christ. So, original sin, we have credited to our account from Adam, means that when a child is born, he's born on the wrong side of the tracks. He's born into a long line of sinners like us, as Eric Church would say. And to prove it, ultimately, that child will die. He could die in the womb. He could die at birth. He could die five days after birth. He could die at 100 years old. But it is coming for him. We do not have people walking around today who are four, five, six, nine hundred years old. The onion was right. Mortality rate is 100% on planet Earth. Now, as a little rascal, this, this child, children, that nature may not show itself immediately, but it does blossom over time. It may not take much time. And you know this if you've had kids. We all know that they're real beautiful and pretty, starting out, most of them. But all of a sudden, Something happens to them. Full moon comes out. We don't know what it is. But, but, but who that child is at his nature begins to mature. I've actually said this before. That if you've watched an infant, when you're late for your feeding, if it just had the, uh, the muscle mass and coordination, it would kill you because you're late. It just doesn't have the muscle mass and coordination. Now, if you happen to disagree with me, I'll let you do that. But you know this. You do not have to teach your kid to lie. You do not have to teach your kid to bite. You do not have to teach your kid to hit. You do not have to teach your kid to be selfish. You do not have to teach your kid to throw a tantrum. You do not have to teach your kid to disobey. Those come naturally. My newest granddaughter just turned two. She knows already that she is not to eat the dog's food. But she will do it in a heartbeat if she gets the chance. Why? Sin nature. She knows it's wrong. Now, I don't think she has a real good uh, mature appreciation of what sin is yet. But so anyway, it seems to be that between a child's birth and the, if you will, the flowering of this nature, Scripture seems to suggest there's a period of time in there where a child is actually a great example of what it takes to get to heaven. When Jesus talked about what you have to be like to get to heaven, he did not say, well, you got to be like a rich guy. He did not say, you got to be like a strong guy. He did not say, you got to be like a smart guy. He said, you got to be like a little guy. You got to be like a little guy, an infant, a child. There are a number of places where God sort of uses children as examples of innocence. Now, our Mormon friends are using a coloring book to help kid, kids get rid of that, uh, if you will, that innocence as quickly as possible. I don't know why they're doing that, but they are. Mormons aside, here's what a great majority of evangelical, fundamental, Bible-believing theologians have concluded. That there seems to be a period of time between a birth of a child and the maturing of that sin nature and the, res- and the uh, acknowledgement of that child that he's doing a sin thing And then when a kid who's in that period of time dies, he or she goes to heaven. Of course, the question always is that we have, well, when is that period when a kid is safe? Well, the truth is God does not tell us. Judgment is a sovereign activity of God. It's a good thing for him that he knows we don't. 
Maybe that's a good thing. Because uh, one person said it this way. If God had said, well, uh, at the age of 12, that 12, that's when the clock starts ticking, that's when sin gets really accounted uh, to, a, to, a, to a life, okay? If God had said that, I think parents would come to the conclusion, if, if, at, a, at the age of 11, it doesn't look like that kid's going to do very well. Maybe we've got to do something about that kid. My dad would have probably said when I was 11, because I didn't get saved until I was 12. If my dad was told at age 12, if your son's not saved by then, he's going to hell, right? If he dies at the age of 12 without accepting Christ, he's going to hell. But if he dies at 11, he gets in. I think my dad would have told my mom, Beulah May, that's her name, Beulah May, I think we've got to put this boy down. I don't see any way in the world. Because <laughs> if he, he's 11 now, but if he turns 12, it's all over. He's going to go to hell. So the best thing we can do for him is just put him down, put him out of his misery. Make sure he gets to heaven, okay? So, I, I, I do happen to this. I do believe that little kids who die go to be with the Lord. And here's why. And listen, the rationale that you and I have for this cannot be just because we want it to be that way or because it makes sense to us or according to our reason, it just makes sense. If that's how we're going to operate, we are no better than anybody in the Enlightenment movement who just says, basically, screw what God says. Forget what he says. I know better, so I'm going to invent my own rational reasoning. So I, we have to force ourselves to try to get into God's mind on this. My particular text for this is what King David declared after his son died, the result of his uh, adultery with Bathsheba. David declares, I believe under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that he would see that son again. We know that David, God declares David, a man after God's own heart. We know that David was headed to heaven. So I and others have surmised that this newborn son is going to be in heaven too. But listen to me. If God did take that newborn son and all the others, it is not because they deserved it or because they were so good. It would be because of his grace and in spite of the fact that they have imputed sin credited to their account from Adam and the, their own inherent sin nature they were born with. Because we all entered the world with it. Does that make sense? If you've got questions about that, send me a text, send me a message, whatever. But um, I, what I want you to do is be able to kind of put your mind at ease. If you've got little kids, or you've had a little child that die, or maybe you had a miscarriage, I think Scripture tells us that kid is going to be there waiting for you when you get to heaven. All right? So I don't want you worrying about kids for the rest of this text. There's enough junk in the rest of this text to have you occupy your minds with. So, verse 12. Imputed sin, credited to everybody's account for what Adam did. As a result, people die. Adam and everybody else. Now, in verse 13 and 14, Paul's going to show he's not just making this up. Look at his proof. Verse 13. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. Okay, let's, let's take this apart. The Bible talks about the law. It's talking about the law that God gave to Moses after he rescued them from slavery in Egypt at the foot of Mount Sinai where he gave them the Ten Commandments and all the laws. So if you, if you kind of go back in Scripture, what you'll find is there was one law in the Garden of Eden. Do not eat of the fruit of this tree. Once Adam sinned, they were removed from the Garden of Eden. The, for the period of time between Adam, Abra, uh, Adam and Moses, there was no law in effect. There was no law in effect. People just did whatever they thought best, right? Now, what this verse is saying is that even though there was no law, the Ten Commandments, all that kind of stuff, didn't exist yet. What, it, what this verse is saying is, look, if you kind of look at history, between the time of Adam and Moses, 
When there was no law, there was still death all over the place. Some of the great judgments of the Bible occurred in that period of time. The great flood, which obliterated everybody except for eight people. The destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah took time at the uh, time of, uh, of Abraham. But in verse 13, we see this, that all those people who died prior to Moses, they did not die because they had sinned by breaking God's law. They could not have because the law didn't exist yet. Even so, sin had to have existed during that time. Why? Because people died. What causes died? What causes people to die? Sin. Sin is the result. Sin brings the result of death. So if people are dying through that period of time, somehow sin is still in the mix. So where did these people, before Moses, before the law, get charged with that sin that led to their physical deaths? For, for, for the whole verse 13 says this, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin was not counted where there was no law. So, so follow me here. Before the law was given at Moses, at Moses' time, okay, it's the moral equivalent of this. If you, if, you, if you do not, until you have an official designation of law that says this is right and this is wrong, don't do this, stop doing that. You cannot charge a person with violating a law if there's no law. If there's no law of any kind, then no additional sin would have been credited to their accounts or anybody's account during that time from Adam to Moses. Why? Because he doesn't know that he doesn't know by the law that he violated anything. So, so if you get a ticket and you go to court and you show that the speed limit sign was either knocked down, blown over, or obscured by vegetation, and you had no knowledge that there was a law, you would get off because there's no posted law that you could have known about. So when there's no law in force making something wrong, you cannot have violated it, and therefore you cannot have any guilt for your action. Now, if cameras had shown you later traveling this road every day for the last 10 years, you'd be toast, but that's another story. So Paul says, even though there was no official law in force between Adam and Moses, sin obviously existed. How do we know? Because people died during that period of time. And we know that it is sin that brings death, just logical connection of the dots. So if there was no sin that existed to add to the sin that people had already, no one should have died physically. But they did. And he says this in verse 14. Yet the reality is, even though they're not violating any law during that time that God had established, they all died. Everybody from Adam to Moses. Even those who did not sin like Adam did. Adam sinned is a very specific uh, action, right? Okay. All the way to Moses. Death gets everybody. All those pre-Moses fellows died even though they did not have any additional sin credited to their account. Why? Because there was no law, therefore they didn't violate it like Adam did. They did not cross a deliberate established barrier like Adam did. But Paul is basically proving his point in verse 12. In Adam's fall, we sinned all. It was that sin from Adam that got buried into, credited to the accounts that what is caused everybody to die. So, then it goes into verse 14. Adam, we see all the stuff that's going on with Adam is that he's a type of the one who is to come. We know this from scripture here in a second or two that this one who is to come is Jesus. What is this saying? It's not the type of cartoon, uh, this, the type this cartoon is referring to here at all. A type in scripture is, a, is sort of an illustration or a shadow. What this is saying is this. Adam is an illustration 
in some way of something that someone else, in this case, Jesus, is or did. There's something in Adam's experience that is somehow common to Jesus' experience. So Adam is a type of Christ. And here's, the, here's how the type works. In this case, each of these fellows commits a single act that results in the imputation of something to others, the crediting of something to a host of other people. What Adam did got credited to the rest of the human race. What Christ did gets righteousness credited to a host of believers who accept Christ by faith. Now, if you or I have been writing this chapter, we'd probably just quit right there and go straight on to chapter 6. We just said, okay, we have made the point that man obtained salvation by the activity of someone else, J. Jesus. We looked to the Old Testament and we found an illustration that's eerily similar. Adam sinned and the whole race received the penalty he did for that sin, death. But Paul does not stop there. He seems to be very sensitive about making sure we don't sort of compare Adam and Christ as, 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 as equals. Adam is not the equal and opposite of Christ. Christ is superior. Someday it's going to be like sin never even existed, like evil never existed. So Paul's going to spend the next few verses showing the superiority of what Christ has done over what Adam did. That what Adam did is totally undone and, and surpassed by what Christ has done. So watch Paul's reasoning. It's brilliant. Verse 15. But the free gift, we already know what the free gift is from our walking through the book of Romans. It's this gift of righteousness by our faith in Christ. We get salvation. That free gift is not like the trespass referring to Adam's original sin. For if many died through the one man's trespass, and we know that they did, much more have the grace of God and this free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. So Adam's a type, but the comparison's not exactly the same. See, the sin of Adam brought total disaster. It brought death for everybody, a decaying, degenerative force at work in all mankind. But Jesus, and what he did, brought a superior and far more dynamic power, bringing life out of death. Life not only did or does away with death, but it restores what had been broken. Even more than just life, a whole new life, as we're going to see in a second. It's better than before. Yesterday really is gone in Christ. In verse 16, it goes broader. And this free gift, this salvation, isn't like the result of, of Adam's original sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift, eternal life, following many trespasses brought justification. So, get this one. One man, Adam, acted. Sin occurred, condemnation, death. How cool is it that Jesus does something that is handed to us as a gift that totally removes many sins? See, the gal on the screen goes way overboard, way overboard with the fake tan stuff. But Jesus also goes way overboard for us. His one act didn't just cover the guilt we carry from Adam's sin, it also takes care of the far-reaching consequences of that sin plus all the sin nature and the sin we, we have committed in our lives by thought, word, action, and deed. We find pardon not just for the guilt we share with Adam, but for our own. Christ, one act is going to end up having a, an, almost an infinite number of trespasses or sins forgiven. I heard this. Sam Houston, the famous Texan, he gets saved. He gets saved later in life. I think he's in his 60s. They take him down to baptize him in a river. 
And the pastor uh, dunks him, brings him back up and says, Sam, your sins are washed away. And Sam's response is brilliant. He says this, well, if that's the case, then God helped the fish down below. He got, he got it just how much sin he had committed that Christ had lifted off of his back. And it was a lot more than just the sin that he inherited from Adam. It was his own life. And in verse 17, our salvation in Christ gives us a better life than Adam had before he sinned. You think the Garden of Eden was like miraculously wonderful, right? But here's what he says. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, and it does, nobody escapes death, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through that one man, Jesus Christ. Let, let's face it, let's go back to the garden for a second. Think about life there. Adam operated under the threat of death every single day he was in the Garden of Eden, right? Only one rule. Do not eat the fruit of that particular tree. But if you do, it's death. Yikes. So every day, the possibility existed <laughs> you were going to end up dead. What Christ has done is not just neutralize what Adam did. Calvin was actually right. Christ has given us a better life. We have not returned to the conditions in the Garden of Eden, as idyllic as they might have been. We've been given the gift of eternal life that cannot be, as Paul has articulated in chapter 5, cannot be removed. We've been given the Holy Spirit, God in person indwelling us. We've been given new hearts, a new nature, a drive that wants to please God, to become more and more like Christ. Instead of just battling to try to avoid doing something, to don't eat that tree, we have the possibility of victory over sin because of the power of Christ in our lives. We can literally reign in life. That's Jesus' intention. That, that's, listen, that's far better than a God who just visits in the cool of the day here and there. And oh my, what, what awaits us? New bodies, impeccable. Sin will go away. Tears will go away. We'll be in a place where there are pleasures evermore described. We're getting so much more in Christ than we lost in Adam. Paul begins to wrap it up in verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass, Adam, led to condemnation for all men, nobody escaped, so one act of righteousness by Jesus leads to justification and life for all men, salvation for those who claim him by faith, just as we've heard in Romans. For as one man's obedience, disobedience, Adam in the Garden of Eden, the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience. Remember when Jesus said in his garden of Gethsemane, yes, your will be done, many will be made righteous. So can a human being escape by his own actions the fall of Adam? No, not by his own actions. You and I are not going to escape death no matter what we do. No fountain of youth. You're not going to freeze your body, come back 20, 25 years later, Medical technology is not going to save you. You're going to die. And nothing's going to allow you to escape the consequences in your natural state of what Adam did. You will die. You have inherited a sin nature that's going to lead you to sin. And on this death row of humanity, you were totally secure, naturally speaking, in what Adam did. Or put another way, you were trapped, unable to escape it. In the same way, as Christians, if you have genuinely put your faith in Christ, you are trapped as well. But how wonderful is that trap? Trapped by, secured by Christ. You are freed to a new life. Because things are spectacular. Having placed your faith in Christ, 
Are we now able to do anything to escape Christ's righteousness being applied to our accounts by anything we do? Did you do anything to earn it to begin with? Totally an act of God. All you do is believe. Having believed, he locks you in. If you've genuinely placed your faith in Christ, you cannot forfeit it. As a matter of fact, Paul just told us, our futures are even more secure because of Christ than our death was under Adam. Oh, we know that to be true. We have been raised to new life. So, verse 21, 22, Paul concludes by returning to answer a question about the law. Now that the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Christ our Lord. Okay, walk through what this says. Adam makes one mistake. He sins by breaking the one rule, death spreads to everybody through time because of that. But as we've said, even though people knew that life was short, there was no law that they knew they were violating. All they knew is they died. They may have connected it to what Adam did. Who knows? So what does God do to make it very clear? He gives Moses the law. And we know from early in Romans what the law was intended to do. The law was not intended by God to cause you and I to conclude we need to figure out how to keep every stinking one of those laws. The law was given to show us that we could not to show us that in addition to the sin of Adam we get credit for, we've got our own sins because of our own sin nature that we've got to deal with. We've got a sin nature that's going to violate these laws of God and make it perfectly clear to us we are sinners. And when we do realize that, God's intention was that it would drive us to seek the Savior that he provided in Jesus Christ, his own son. It's like God is now working over time to make it perfectly clear that we have a need for Christ. So, so I think God's intention is this. Okay, human race, you have two choices. Death and condemnation. Or door number two, Jesus. Free gift, life, forgiveness, declaration of innocence, eternal life with me, death and sin totally lose. That's exactly what God was going for. And it's exactly how much he loves people. Let's pray.